And just to, to let you know that, excuse me, I have sometimes been accused by those who know me well of having something of a Scrooge-like attitude towards Christmas, of not showing sufficient joy around the Christmas period. I reject that accusation without reservation. Well, maybe. Anyway. But let's be honest and say that it can at times be difficult to be joyful. If you focus on the current world situation, the ever-present threat from ISIS, the terrible atrocities now going on in Syria that currently seem to be part of our, our daily almost news diet. And if you add to that our present national situation with Brexit and all its different ramifications that unfold, plus the personal challenges that, that many of us today are facing, work pressures or no work pressure, health problems, family problems, etc., etc. And then if you top all of this off with Christmas, with what the modern Christmas now is for so many. And here I, I have to say I find myself agreeing with the comments of the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, which isn't always the case, but these are the comments that he made as reported in the Telegraph. And this is what he says, the absurd and ridiculous pressure to have a perfect Christmas puts relationships under strain and spoils life. Consumerism over the festive period is now so over the top that couples are left arguing over money and children are shouted at. Families need to show love and affection rather than try to buy it. So think of, of these kind of things and it, it becomes maybe much easier to understand why some people find it difficult to be happy, to be joyous, at Christmas. Today I want to share with you then the secret of knowing a joyous Christmas. But before I get into that, let me just maybe just try and just cheer up your day a little bit by sharing with you some children's Christmas letters from over the years. Here's one of them. Dear Santa, please give me a doll this year. I would like her to eat, walk, do my homework and help me clean my room. Thank you, Jenny. Dear Santa, please give me a tank, a jet fighter, 20 green soldiers, and a bazooka gun. I'm planning a surprise attack on my brother, so don't tell anyone. Danny. Dear Santa, I need a new skateboard for Christmas. The one I've got now crashes too much. Band-Aids would be okay too. David. Accidents seem to go with a name. And finally, I believe that this one was written a number of years ago now, but it's got a, a local connection. Dear Father Christmas, what should I leave your reindeer to eat? Do they like biscuits? My mum won't let me bring hay into the living room. Sandy age 25, <laughs> Hamilton. The name was true, the rest was pure artistic license. Okay, back now though to what we're going to concentrate on this morning. How can we this Christmas, despite all that's going on in our nation, in our world, perhaps even in our own lives, 
How can we, this Christmas, enjoy a happy, joyous Christmas? Well, let me tell you in a sentence what I believe we need to do, and then, using Hebrews 1, 1 to 14, let me try and open this up a little bit for you. So here it is in a sentence. The secret of a truly happy Christmas is to focus on God's message to us at Christmas. So I'm going to use then these opening verses of Hebrews to help us to do that. Well, why? Well, because you see, if ever a group of believers needed help and encouragement, if ever a group of believers needed help to refocus on what's really important, it was the recipients of this letter. For you see, Hebrews was written to first century Jews who'd become Christians, who had converted to Christian faith, but they were finding life tough, really tough. For because they'd become Christians, because in their the eyes of their Jewish contemporaries, they turned their back on their faith and on the one true God. So they were rejected, ostracized, and under constant threat of violence from their family, from their former friends, and from wider Jewish society. You see, no more invitations to family events and parties. No more working with former Jewish workmates or for former Jewish employers. And all the while facing insults and attack on the streets. Outright physical violence with the ever-present risk of an outright attack on your family or on your own home. And it wasn't just their fellow Jews. These Jewish Christians also faced outright persecution and hostility from the dominant Gentile Roman society that most of them were living in. You see, the Gentiles, with their many gods, they already deeply resented the Jewish claim that there was only one true God and that he was their God, the God of the Jews. But then you see, when the Christians came along and added on top of this, that this God had become a man, a man who'd been born in a stable in Bethlehem, who had lived and worked as a Jewish carpenter, And who then was executed on the cross at Calvary by them, by the Jews, but with the connivance of their Jewish authorities, when the Christians claimed that this man was God, but at the same time refused to worship their gods, refused even to worship Caesar, who they claimed to be a god as God. Well, you see, this sent these Roman, these Gentiles, over the edge. They'd managed so far to tolerate the Jews just, but this for them was going too far. So you see, Christians became open game as far as the Romans were concerned. It was tough then for these Jewish Christians to live for Jesus. Life in this world was hard for them, extremely hard. They were an isolated, persecuted minority. And from the content of the book of Hebrews, it would seem that some of them had just about had enough. They'd just about had enough. They were considering giving up and turning their backs on Jesus, on Christian faith, and returning back to Judaism. 
Because, you see, they knew that this was the way to a far easier life in this world, in the here and now. Because the Jews would welcome them back to the fold. A place at the table would again be set for them at family and community events. And this would get the Romans off their back as well. They would perhaps only be grudgingly tolerated as Jews, but that was better than being the focal point of Roman animosity. You know, it can be tough being a Christian. Tough for them, and though usually to a significantly lesser extent, it can be tough for us too. We have problems maybe at work, problems in our relationship, problems in our family. We've got illness to deal with. We're maybe trying to deal perhaps with the crushing burden of grief. Life can be tough for us. And perhaps God seems so far away. So we wonder then, you know, why isn't God stepping in for me? Why am I going through all this if God really loves me? Does he love me? as the Christian faith claims. It can be tough. And maybe like those early Jewish Christians, we feel tempted just to give up and turn our back on God. Or maybe we know that we've got to go on in in Christian life, got to go on in church life because there's so much holding us here. So much of our life already is invested and revolves around this. But we are maybe going through the motions. There's little joy, little vibrancy about our Christian faith. Well, if that's where we are, and as fragile, frail human beings, I think there are times when most of us feel at least a little bit like this. Then God has sent a message to us this Christmas. A message that was sent first to the Hebrews, but that certainly continues to have relevance to us today. So let's look then in these opening verses of Hebrews 1, God's message to us at Christmas. And the first thing I want to draw your attention to is the fact that it was a personal message. A personal message. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 1 from verse 1. It says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son whom he has appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Now these are incredible verses that teach many amazing truths. But at the core of these verses, there stands this truth. That though God had revealed himself in the past to men with this revelation forming the, the Old Testament, now so treasured by the Jews, yet now in Jesus Christ, God has moved this on one massive further step. Instead of revealing himself partially to mankind, he now reveals himself fully by becoming a man. So he no longer then tells us how to live. Rather, he now comes among us and shows us how to live. Shows us how to live the kind of holy, perfectly pure, love-filled life that has always been God's desire for mankind. Jesus comes in the fullness, 
of God's glory. Verse 3, the radiance, it says, of God's glory. And the exact representation of his being. He comes and becomes in that baby at Bethlehem. Truly and wholly a man. And then later on the cross, he gives himself for our sin. He pays the price for our sin. That sin that separates us from God. As a man, he stands in our place. As God, he pays that price we could not pay. His sinless life given for us. This is what God has done for us personally. By coming to our world in the person of Jesus. And now we can know him personally. We can by faith. As we put our faith, our trust in him, Jesus then comes into our lives in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we then rely on him, Jesus leads us. As we seek to be obedient to him and live for him, he leads us and gives us new power to live that life that pleases him. Now, the challenge that this was designed to bring to those who first received this letter to the Hebrews is that if this is what God has done for us in Jesus, and if this is what God is able to do in us through Jesus, if we can know God personally in our lives through faith in Jesus Christ, then can we choose to ignore this? Or to live our lives in any other way. Whether it's to live our lives by a religion of some kind shared by intermediaries. Or, or to live our life in any other way. How can we do that? How can that ever compare to living a life where we know God personally? Nothing can compare. Nothing matters more. Than knowing and then living that life. But you know, but when we talk about knowing God personally, I want to say to you, let's just take time and remember who the Jesus actually is, who we know personally, in the sense of, of what his life experience actually ultimately was. So then remember that he was God's son. God's unique, beloved Son, who willingly came to this earth to fulfill the Father's will and to rescue us from judgment and death. And He was and He is glorious and victorious. He defeated all the powers of evil. He rose triumphantly from the grave and He is now ascended and at the Father's right hand. All of that is true. And we rejoice in that, and rightly. But you know, let's not forget that as Jesus Christ lived in this fallen, sinful world, that the road to victory, that the road to resurrection was paved with suffering and with pain that reached its climax, that reached its ultimate at the cross. He suffered there really in a, a way physically that is beyond our understanding. And he did. 
But he also suffered spiteful abuse, rejection and abandonment, even by those who loved him, that emotionally must have torn him apart. And spiritually, you know, Jesus suffered that sense of the absence of God. That in his moment of need, God was nowhere to be found. Or seemed to be nowhere to be found in the most profound way imaginable. I mean, just listen again to that anguish cry from the cross. As for that moment in eternity, as he took our sin upon his shoulders, so the Father in his holiness could not look upon him. Meaning that for that moment in all eternity, the perfect fellowship between the Father and the Son was broken. And so Jesus then cries out from the cross. Matthew 27, 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, he knew the reason why. But notice that did not lessen his agony. But you see, if you put all this together, then what does this mean then for those who are followers of Jesus, who are called to walk in his footsteps? Surely it must mean that in the Christian life, we can expect to know victory and blessing. We can expect to know joy and peace, and we can expect to know so much more. Yes, we can. But we can also expect to know. In this sinful, fallen world, we can expect to know pain and disappointment, opposition, rejection, and again, so much more. Now you see, when this comes our way, you know, we're human beings. This hurts us. This shakes us. It does. All of us. The question is, how do we deal with this when inevitably it comes our way? Are we tempted, like the Hebrews were here, simply just to give up on God? It's too hard. Just give it all up. Or do we maybe keep up externally the motions of actually going forward with God, but, but deep inside, we're actually bitter and angry. We're disappointed with God. We're disappointed with the Christian faith. I believe there is another way to deal with this. It's been inferred already, but we'll bring it right out now as we move on to look at the second part of God's message to us at Christmas. But it is an eternal message. Now this is made clear, I think, in a number of places in these verses, but perhaps most clearly in verse 8, where it says, But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Now, the core message here is, is pretty obvious, isn't it? That, that what Christ has done, that the personal relationship he has brought us into with God, that this is eternal. That no matter what this world brings against us, no matter what challenges we face in life, nothing can take away. Nothing can change. What God has done for us in Jesus Christ or the relationship with God that Jesus has won for us, nothing can change that. 
Now that's the fact. That's the spiritual reality. But let me just widen this out a little bit. Let's look at what this could, what this actually should mean in practice. This dimension of the eternal, of eternity, of the spiritual. Well, surely what this should mean is putting everything that we experience in life through the filter of Jesus Christ, through, if you like, a spiritual filter, an eternal filter. Something on the lines of, Jesus came to this world in order to fulfill God's key purpose in all eternity. That's what he came for. He came to glorify the Father in a way and to a degree that no one else will ever come close to. His journey began as a baby in Bethlehem. Then went on through his ministry to the cross, to the resurrection, and then finally, as we said, to his ascension to the right hand of the Father. But as we've seen along the way, there were times of incredible challenge, times of extreme hardship. Even Jesus at times was almost overwhelmed. What held him? What kept him when things were at their worst? I believe his focus on, his continuing return to the Father and the spiritual. You see, Jesus knew the Father. He knew the Father's purpose. And he was determined, no matter what, to live for the Father's glory. So he kept on. He held on. Through it all, he held on. Now let's be clear. We're not Jesus. I mean, we're not going to experience anything like what Jesus went through. But here, how as much as ever, here, how we can learn from him. In that we too, you know, we cannot expect our Christian experience to be fundamentally different to that of Jesus. So like him, in this world, we will know a mixture of blessing and of victory, but also of suffering and hardship and disappointment. Now you see, we need to get hold of this. We need to understand this. That in this world, this is the Christian life. Don't have any other expectation because that's the way it is. Perfect love and joy and peace, all of that is for the world to come. And so when we pass through these hard times, we need to seek then to do what Jesus did. To live as Jesus lived. That is, we need to learn to remember our Father. We need to learn to remember who our Father is and how much He loves us. And then we need to seek to remember just what life for a believer is supposed to actually be about, stripped right down fundamentally. And it's not primarily about being happy. It's not about a pain-free, trouble-free life. No, the main purpose of our lives as God's people is to live our lives to glorify Him. That's what it's about. To live our lives in such a way that our lives point to God. That they point to His glory. Now that's not always easy. I know that. Far from it. 
And it's certainly not natural. It's not natural. But God, you see, as we turn to Him, as we seek Him in our weakness, in our sin, He is able to give us the supernatural power, the power of the Spirit that will enable us to live like this. The key is that we seek Him, that our hearts are open to Him, that we turn to Him. The third and final part of God's message to us at Christmas that we're going to look at this morning relates to the fact that it's also an unchanging message. For here from verse 10 on, the writer here talks about the earth and the heavens, and then in verse 12 he goes on, he says, you will roll them up like a robe, like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. You see, God is unchanging. And so his message, his fundamental message is unchanging. And the demands and the expectations that God has for his people, they too are unchanging. It's the the message of the gospel and the lifestyle demands of the gospel, they are unchanging. The fact that God became a man in Jesus Christ, the fact that he lived a sinless life, the fact that he gave that life upon the cross to pay for our sin, the fact that he rose again, ascended, and soon we pray will return for his people, the fact that he expects us to live holy lives, lives where we turn our back on sin and seek in his strength to live lives that are different and distinctive in order to bring him glory. All of this and far more is unchanging. But let's be clear. This is one of the areas in which the world today puts most pressure on Christians. You see, the society we live in now doesn't like the unchanging message of the gospel. It goes against the current philosophy. What we say about things like sin, like Christ being the only saviour, like there being a coming judgment, the world doesn't like that. And then when we stand against the lifestyle choices and the current morals of our society, then again, the world doesn't like it. And Christians sometimes crumble in the face of this. We don't like standing against the flow. We don't like upsetting people. So we've got evangelicals, now my view, former evangelicals, saying that they don't believe anymore that Christ died on the cross for our sin. Rather, what the cross is, is an incredible example of love. Forget about the sin stuff. It's all about love. Now you see, the world likes that. It's much more acceptable. The problem is, though, that it's not what the Bible says. It's not the unchanging message of the gospel. For while the Bible does say that the cross is the most incredible example of love, Yet it also says, it repeatedly says, that Christ died on the cross for our sin. Well, this is God's message to us at Christmas 
in Jesus Christ. A personal message, an eternal message, an unchanging message. Let's believe it. Let's hold on to it. And above all, let's seek to live it. Not just at Christmas, but every single day of our lives. Let's come and pray. Let's pray together. Father, we want to give thanks to you now for the message of the gospel. We want to thank you for all you've given us, for all that you've done for us in Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Be with us now. Bless us in our desire, in our endeavors to live for you. This we pray now in that precious name of Jesus. Amen.